The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Each week, we look at three pieces from the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm Laura Prendergast, The Spectator's executive editor. And I'm William Moore, The Spectator's features editor. On this week's episode, we'll be discussing the battle lines being drawn between the Conservatives and Labour. We'll be debating whether Britain has lost its appeal as a place to live. And we'll be asking whether we as a country are uniquely gullible. First up. In her cover piece for the magazine this week, Katie Balls writes that after the Tory party conference, the battle lines have now been drawn between the two main parties for the next general election. She joins us now, along with The Spectator's editor, Fraser Nelson, to discuss. Katie, you're just back from conference and your cover piece this week talks about how the battle begins for the next general election and how Rishi Sunak looks to take on Keir Starmer. Firstly, what's been the reaction to the Prime Minister's speech? So I think when you speak to those around Rishi Sunak and Tory MPs, broadly speaking, I think the speech, I think they think went pretty much as good as could be expected. And by that, I mean that those three big policy announcements that the Prime Minister made in it, so one was scrapping the second leg of HS2, suburban to Manchester. It was pretty clear that was going to be very divisive. There's been a big row about it in advance. The fact that Richard would not comment on it meant it dominated really all the conference up until the point he got on stage and, and thereafter. And um, then the smoking ban was quite clearly going to be unpopular within the Tory party. I think it's probably more popular with uh, voters at large and Labour voters, perhaps, um, than, uh, you know, the Tory grassroots. And then finally, you had scrapping A-levels and moving to a new system, which will take a lot of time, requires Rishi Sunak to be re-elected, which is a big if right now. But that would be one where I think it's interesting how industry responds and, you know, how they actually plan to action it. But if you take the first two, so HS2, you've had David Cameron coming out and being very critical again. You have had Boris Johnson joined that. But I think that was fairly priced in. And probably uh, when we're talking about how the reaction could have been worse, I think had Andy Street, the West Midlands mayor, resigned, which seemed like an option before the speech, that would have probably just added to this sense of, you know, Tories spending all the time fighting one another. And then on the smoking one, I think there is unhappiness, but it doesn't feel, of course, it is a free vote, as though it's becoming this big rebellion right now, at least. So, so therefore... I think the top line the day on from his speech is still Rishi Sunak's trying to be the change candidate and hear his big, big policies rather than the Tory party as a bin fire, which uh, probably is a win for him. Is it quite a hard sell to the electorate to say vote for a fifth Conservative term if you want to be if you want to vote for change? I, th- I mean, I think it's an incredibly hard sell. I think when you think about Rishi Sunak's strategy, which is five priorities, uh, what he had at the time, it was largely other people's ideas, what came from focus groups. But he needed something to say, and it was seen as a way to try and calm public anger down so they start to listening listening to what you have to say. Now you go to this, which is that I'm, a ch- I'm the change candidate. I stand for things. You may not like what I stand for, but here are some tough decisions I'm willing to make. And let's look at that other guy, Keir Starmer, because... 
we're going to say he doesn't stand for anything. I mean, you can see the sense to the strategy, but also I think it's partly what it is because he doesn't have many options. The Tory party has been in power for 13 years. Um, the country, or at least the public, do not feel that the country is working particularly well. And that's why you end up at one which is accepting all the problems and trying to pitch yourself as different and different to what become. The tricky thing for Rishi Sunak is in his speech, he was talking about the past 30 years. <laughs> Keir Starmer wants to talk about the past 13 years, which are Tory rule, and they do slip into one another sometimes. Fraser, you were also at Tory conference, and, and there was obviously a lot of talk beforehand about the Prime Minister trying to make a big bang. Firstly, what did you make of his speech? And secondly, were, I mean, were you impressed by any of the new policies that were announced? I was a bit disorientated. I mean, after announcing HS2 reform and net zero reform, you expected, I would have liked to have seen welfare reform, something big, substantial, bold, daring. Instead, you had um, A-level reform and a rather bizarre plan to stop young kids younger than 14 smoking for the rest of their lives which certainly was a talker in my household it means that my son Alex will be able to do what he wants but Dominic who's um, 13 Alex is 15 Dominic will never be able to buy cigarettes ever Dominic is 81 and if he smokes he'll have to get Alex who'd be 83 to buy them for him because legal age will be 82 so you know this is um not exactly what we expected, and it all it comes down from a New Zealand policy that was intended to stop Maori smoking. It's all very bizarre. And I um, I went away slightly disorientated because I wouldn't... Uh, policies like that seemed to me something that you would do if you basically thought you only had a few more months left to be Prime Minister and you were looking for a big legacy. So you would announce A-level reform, which, by the way, might may or may not happen after the next election. You would announce a smoking ban. I'm sure Labour would love to implement one of those. They'd probably add other things that Dominic won't be able to do, like buy uh, sugary drinks or, or what have you. But it did surprise me, because there, there were reforms he could actually make in the next year, if he had chosen to make those reforms. HS2 was immediate. So the net zero thing, the immediate effect. A-level reform will take 10 years to do. And you'd have to pretty much start things um, in motion now. And the the smoking ban, if it's ever implemented, will again not take effect for, for several years. So it left me thinking that he wants to present the image of somebody who's buzzing with ideas and energy and is contrasting himself from a semi-comatosed Keir Starmer. So you've got the young Rishi in his early 40s versus Starmer in his early 60s. Perhaps that's the look he's going for. Perhaps he wants to come up with conversation starters and to give the impression of radicalism. But I was a little bit disappointed because I didn't think the rest of his agenda was plausible or that much of anybody's priority. Do you think then we can assume that Rishi Zunak doesn't think that he's going to be in power after the next election if he's only doing these quite short-term policies? Well, that was my reading of it, actually. It's not so much that they're short-term, but do you remember when Theresa May was in her final weeks of office? That's when she passed the Net Zero Pledge. She committed the Tories to abolishing Net Zero by 2050. She had not the faintest idea how she would do it. But now when you read her memoir, she wants that to be regarded as her legacy. So sometimes politicians go into legacy mode where they're thinking, hang on a minute, I want to do something. I want to plant a tree that I can point to in 10, 20, 40 years time and say, look, that was me. And that that had an aspect of this with with Sunak, of somebody who is wanting a legacy and he's ended up with a rather illiberal one. Or with A-level reforms, you know, I guess starting a conversation which we've had 20 years ago. Katie, looking ahead now to Labour conference, which is 
coming up next this weekend. It seems that Keir Starmer's going into it in a pretty strong position, a you know, 20-point lead for Labour in the polls, give or take. And he's you've written extensively for the magazine about how he has taken over the, the, the party machinery, you know, the centrists are back in charge, the sensibles are back in charge. So given this position of strength, what now will Keir Starmer hope to achieve from this weekend's conference? So I think what Keir Starmer wants to do this conference is to try and answer the question... If not them, why us? Um, because, as you say, Keir Starmer looks in a really strong position. There was one poll um, just ahead of Tory Comp suggesting the Labour lead was down to 10 points. And um, I think if that was the case and there were repeated polls suggesting it, you would have a little bit of panic in the Labour Party and you'd have a, you know, a lot more smiling faces in the Tory Party. But as things stand, it looks like a blip. It's still broadly somewhere between 15 and 20-something points that mo- mostly comes up. But is that really because people are actively wanting to vote for Labour or is it more just frustration with the Tories? And I think the view amongst many in the shadow cabinet who I've spoken to is they just worry it is still an anti-Tory vote. So on the off chance that between now and the next election, whether it's spring next year or autumn, something changes by which the Tories do make up some ground. Perhaps people see Rishi Sunak in the way that he wants to, because I do think at least Rishi Sunak and those closest to him think he has a chance of winning, or at least you know stopping some of the, 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 the scenarios that we hear about in terms of wipeout. Do you basically get to a point um, wh- whereby people start to say, well, if, if it gets to 10 points, why am I voting Labour? And it's definitely what I think Keir Starmer's team found the hardest to do. So if you think about, uh, you know, changing the party, distancing uh, Keir Starmer from Jeremy Corbyn, big progress in all those things. Trying to make Labour not seem very scary, big progress. But when it comes to what Keir Starmer's Starmerism is, you had those five missions at the beginning of the year. And I remember writing it for the first column of the year for The Spectator, my first as political editor. And they said, you know, this is going to be the year, you know what Starmer means. And I do think we're now on what, you know, <laughs> month uh, 10. And it does not seem to me as there's been a massive transition there. You have big uh, mission on your green energy. I think that's a dividing line. There's one on opportunity in childcare, but it doesn't really tell you too much about the person. So I think they'll try and use his speech again to do that and some announcements. And then I think they'll also do more of what they actually feel they are quite good at and are having more success at, which is just defining themselves against the Tories and trying to point to Tory conference and the fact that Liz Truss was there, the fact that Liz Truss had a big queue of grassroots activists, more perhaps than uh, Jeremy Hunt had in the hall for his speech and say, you know, it's not just Rishi Sunak, which I think is an implicit acceptance that they don't think Rishi Sunak is, you know, their best weapon here. Instead, they think it's certain figures in the Tory party, Sue Ella Bravman, Liz Truss, and to try and suggest that given the Tories are not going to win majority of 80 again or at least that seems quite unlikely were they to have a now when you're just giving these people more of a say i've noticed that liz truss is becoming an ever more important figure for for labor they were delighted to see her give a speech at the fringe they were delighted to see the reception and this is going to obviously be a major in the same way that in uh, god there's been so many elections recently i forget which one but i think 2015 was when they said don't um don't vote for a coalition of chaos with the Labour Party. They had a poster of, I think, um, Alex Salmond with Ed Miliband in his pocket. Now, this is now what Labour are doing. They're saying, look, the Tories are going to be in the coalition of chaos, not with the Lib Dems, but Rishi Sunak with Liz Truss, or or not Boris Johnson anymore because he's gone, or other, other similar people. So I think Truss is going to become quite a figure of focus, I imagine, in the next few months for the Labour Party. Mm. 
Well, well, Katie, on that point about trust being a figure of focus, Labour's obviously very keen on stoking the idea of a trust revival. To what extent have some of the speeches we've seen at Tory party conference this year been a uh, a pitch for the next leader of the Tory party, given that there is a sort of general assumption among a lot of people that uh, the Tories are now destined for a term or two in opposition? So I think there's definitely a factor. I do think every Tory conference, and the same thing happens at Labour conference, if the leader is not doing amazingly well in the polls or looking a bit weak, what journalists such as myself do is go around the fringes to those who do look like they are looking quite good and then say, oh, could this person pose a challenge? And I remember when Keir Starmer was still settling in, that was definitely the case when Andy Burnham was up there before the polls really moved and was saying, you know, well, he speaks in a more strident way, perhaps Andy Burnham would be better. Whereas at this conference, I don't think Andy Burnham will be much of a story story because Keir Starmer looks very secure in his position. So inevitably, I think in Manchester, you saw people paying attention to how many events certain cabinet ministers did. I think Kemi Badenoch is still seen probably as the favourite um, to be the next leader. We had a Coffeehouse Shots Live a recording with Frank Luntz, the US pollster. And two years before, he'd done a survey of the audience for that, you know, to work out who he thought the next leader would be after Boris Johnson. And he came up with Liz Truss. And this time around, he came up with Kemi Badenoch. So that gives you some indication. And then I think Suella Braverman and then the Liz Truss growth rally did have a lot of interest. As um, Jacob Rees-Mogg pointed out to me, had a very long queue. He was one of the speakers as well. But... I think it's also the case, I didn't feel, I felt it added lots of drama to the day on Monday and activists were, you know, interested in it, lots were talking about it, but it didn't feel as though by, you know, the time you got to the evening, it was dominating how people were looking at the conference. So I think it would be a stretch to say that almost these potential challenges or, you know, anti-Sunak figures really dominated the conference, but you are beginning to see, I think, the outlines of who would be the people to look at if the Tories lose the next election. Fraser, is there anyone you're keeping a close eye on at the moment? It's difficult to tell. And you can see an element. You can see when Penny Mordaunt was giving her um, warm-up speech for Rishi Sunak, she was absolutely parading herself as the great bastion of freedom. Uh, she gave this rather bizarre speech about when you stand up to fight, your neighbour stands up to fight, and the whole country stands up to fight. And, and she sort of continued as if she's trying to start a war or something. But So I think we can see, you know, obviously Penny versus uh, Grant Chaps is... Um, fancies his chances as well, um, Kemi is the woman to beat. And actually, it was interesting, uh, I had a number of discussions about what would be the threshold for Sunak to stay on. There is an argument that if a defeat, if he manages to sort of crash land the plane on the Hudson, as it were, and manages to get away with um, having a keeping Labour to a relatively small majority, even a minority, then he might stay as opposition leader. But you can never tell, nobody would have predicted Kemi in the last leadership contest. And these things are always hard to predict in advance. The usual rule in Tory contests is that whoever has been the favourite for a while tends not to win. Thank you, Katie and Fraser. Next up, in her column this week, Lionel Shriver says that she is leaving the UK for the sunnier climes of Portugal. She says Britain has lost its way both economically and culturally. And she joins us now alongside another American expatriate, Kate Andrews, the Spectator's very own economics editor. So Lionel, can I start by asking when it was exactly that you decided that you'd had enough of living in the UK? Oh, it's uh, it's been about two years in the making. I have to admit it wasn't my, my original idea. We have friends who moved to Portugal ahead of us that 
planted a seed in my brain that grew into a tree. And what was the final straw that sort of pushed you? Well, there have been lots of straws, and I'm sure they're soon to be banned. Because <laughs> they're plastic. plastic straws. I am sick to the back teeth, as the British like to say, with uh, the controlling and fascist light governing of this country, and it seems only to get worse. COVID really changed my feelings about this country. I should definitely add that this is very hard for me to do and emotional. And I actually surprised myself by uh, how upsetting it is for me to, to leave this country. I've been living here off and on for 36 years. It's the majority of my adult life. This is not quite the country that I thought. The The rapidity with which the better part of the entire population started reporting each other to the police made my skin crawl. And you're, you're moving to Portugal. What what made you settle on Portugal? Uh, you know, ironically, one of the reasons that I like Portugal is that it's so proximate to the UK. And, you know, there is something about the vibe in that country that I like. It, it, it's, it's small. It's only got 11 million people. It's barely larger than London. And there's just a feeling of it being an older style society. Uh, as, as David Brooks puts it, uh, it's a high trust country. And, and so the feeling is very warm. People are helpful. They're not resentful. And that, I'm afraid, you know, that's, that's a very dominant emotion in the UK. And as I'm getting older, I need all the positivity I can get. Kate, the picture that Lionel paints of this country in, in her piece, one that's falling apart between a struggling NHS and a massive tax burden, it did remind me actually somewhat of your uh, rather brilliant cover piece from a few weeks ago, Broken Britain, in which you addressed a lot of this. So do you think that, that, that uh, Lionel's conclusions, are they ones that you would agree with? Well, I'm really torn uh, because on the one hand, I think Lionel, when she writes about the UK's complete inability to build, the UK's falling apart healthcare service is just spot on. You can't disagree with any of it. It is a tragedy. We can't build homes. We can't build energy infrastructure. We talk about the future and we do absolutely nothing in the present to make that future better. The National a health service is going to be crumbling for a long time to come. That waiting list of 7.6 million people is still going in the wrong direction. And even when it starts going in the right direction, it's going to take so many years to sort this out. And I, I think it's really hard for any of us to, to properly think through what that means for the people on the list right now, how many lives are being lost because we cannot address healthcare in any way that, that isn't extremely emotional and frankly misleading in this country. So, so I'm, I'm so sympathetic to all of those points. I guess I come at it from a slightly different perspective because I'm, I'm an immigrant to the UK. I came over as a student in 2008 and uh, Theresa May changed the law uh, when she was Home Secretary uh, trying to get down to her tens of thousands number just before I graduated, a few months before I graduated. Boris Johnson thankfully brought the scheme back, but it used to be and is now again the case that uh, if you graduate from a UK university, you can stay for a few years, no access to public funds, no access to welfare, but you can stay for a few years to try to meet people, network and get a job. 
we didn't have that luxury. We got kicked out, but I, I found my way back and I had to fight for a, a decade to be able to stay here. And when I say fight, I'm the most privileged immigrant anyone's going to meet, where right? I'm from the United States, I speak English, I've got a good job. And, you know, I, I had friends and I had a network in the UK that, that supported me. And it was still really hard for me sometimes to navigate the visa system. It was so deeply expensive. But I fought, as I watched friends get deported, I, I fought to stay here. And Lionel's piece has really made me reflect on, on why I did that. Um, I think there's so much to criticize in the UK. I also think some of those really personal factors that she said about Portugal, I, I feel relate for me in the UK, that kindness, that sense of humor that Brits bring to the table. I just love the people here. I love the cities in the UK. I love London, but I love Manchester, I love Edinburgh. I love so many aspects of British culture. It is a shame to me that our politicians don't rise to the occasion and make that culture the best it can be. Kate brings up uh, an irony, which I would frame, and that is while I don't like all this controlling behavior from the government, the, the fact is there, there are some really big problems in this country that they're not controlling. One of them is immigration. The other is escalating demands on uh, the electrical grid without generating any new electricity. I mean, uh, you, the one thing you should expect from a controlling government is, you know, classically the trains running on time. <laughs> Amanda, you say in your piece that you feel slightly guilty about leaving the country. Why, why do you feel guilty? I mean, do you, I mean you're, allowed, you're allowed to leave the country. Why do you feel guilt? Well, I feel, you know, that selfishly, this is probably the right decision for me. And I don't expect everyone out there to give a toss whether I stay or go. I mean, this is just a private sensation of, of betrayal. And it has to do with perceiving that the UK is really down on its luck right now. And I worry that the future is starting to look pretty bleak. So this feels like desertion and desertion at the worst possible time. To personify it, it's like, it's like walking out on a friend when they're getting divorced and they've just been diagnosed with cancer. And Kate, uh, if the UK is indeed down on its luck, do you think you could ever be uh, tempted to, to leave here for another country? As an American who's made your home here, could you be tempted to go back to America or, or to another European country as Lionel has done? Are you kicking me out, Will? I'm not, I'm not, yes, I'm I'm not trying to lead, ask any leading questions. Uh, <laughs> but I'm just interested Gosh, to you know. and Suella Braverman. Um, <laughs> look, I, I, I haven't thought that far into the future quite yet. Um, my, my 20s was defined by me trying to stay in the UK. I, I will say this, since getting my leave to remain, I mean, that was a very emotional day. I, I, got, I, I was expecting to get it. I, I knew I fit the criteria. I knew I'd summed up the money. I, I didn't see any reason I wouldn't get it. When the email came through, I, I remember being in the spectator's offices, um, and this must have been early 2021, and there weren't many people here. We were all very socially distanced. And uh, I just remember going into the bathroom and bursting into tears. And I, in happy tears, I, I, I wasn't really expecting that kind of emotional response. But my adult, my entire adulthood has been, has had this factor that some other people don't have of, of, of always questioning, like, will I be allowed to stay? Will the next visa round, will the next application allow me to stay in this place that I've, I've chosen to be? So that's how I've been thinking about it. I will say since getting leave to remain, you do start thinking to yourself, well, now I, I do have this option. What else might 
what else might I do? And I don't know what I'll do, but I, I do think that the, the government's offer to young people at the moment, and I appreciate at 33, I probably can't say that, but let's go for like under 40s. It's just so abysmal. I mean, you, there's so many people that it's not that they don't have a home. They can't even think about a time where they might be able to afford getting on the housing ladder. And the government is just adding to the list of things that young people can't do. They can't get a home. Apparently, they're not going to be able to smoke um, in the future. Um, somebody who doesn't smoke, and, 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 and uh, that's not for me personally, the idea that we would stop legal activity for the next generation because somebody else doesn't like it is just so deeply illiberal. And, you know, I, I just think if you're a young person, you look at this stuff and, you know, whether you agree with the smoking ban or not, whether you think a home should be built in this part of the country instead of that part of the country, the point is other people are making these decisions for you. And it does not inspire a sense of opportunity or aspiration. And, you know, I, I just think it's remarkable that we had a, a prime minister speech this week at his Tory party conference where his proposal to young people was to make the choice for them to ban whether or not they smoke in the future, but not to build some homes. Finally, Lana, I just wanted to ask, are you, are you looking forward to becoming an expat and, and have you been learning any Portuguese? Well, okay, first off, I'm already an expat, right? That's true. So I'm, I'm really, really good at it. <laughs> what I'm not good at is languages. So that's, I mean, there are a couple of huge downsides to this move. And that's, that's a big one. I am going to make an effort. I haven't yet because I have just been packing up our whole household for three weeks. And even um, uh, Kate would sympathize with this. Getting residency in Portugal was exhausting. So I'm going to warn all those people out there who also claim they're moving to Portugal. You're probably not going to. (laughs) (laughs) It's too much trouble. But then I will make an effort to at least you know, get the niceties a a little bit beyond restaurant ease. But my expectation of becoming fluent is near zero. And that's because I'm, I don't, I think it may be that I'm overly attached to English because conversely, I have displayed historically a remarkable ineptitude at any other language. Well, Lionel and Kate, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you. Lionel, we'll miss you. Good luck with the move, Lionel. And finally, Matt Ridley writes this week that we are entering a new age of gullibility. He says our fascination with monsters, aliens and everything in between has overcome our common sense. Matt joins us now alongside Ian Keeble, magician and author of the book The Century of Deception, The Birth of the Hoax in 18th Century England. So, Matt, for listeners, can you start by taking us through your argument in this week's issue? Well, I'm not necessarily convinced that we're more gullible as a people than we've been. We've been extremely gullible in the past. But there does seem to be a tendency for mainstream media like the BBC to indulge the gullibility of of its audience when it comes to things like the Loch Ness Monster, the Yeti, uh, UFOs, crop circles and other examples. I just was very struck by the fact that this summer the BBC uh, ran a whole series of articles about the Loch Ness Monster. Uh, They had a, a series of podcasts about the Yeti, the old hoary chestnut of there being big cats roaming the British countryside seems to come up again and again and so on. And it just reminded me of what I used to get excited about when I was 10 years old. And I wondered why the the mainstream media is sort of reviving these completely debunked 
mythical beasts. Why do you think people do still believe in these things? Well, I think people love believing in mysteries. Uh, they they love believing in ghosts and God and all these different things which they can't uh, actually see or, or, or pin down. Uh, Father Christmas, the Tooth Fairy, uh, you know, a lot of these are harmless, etc. And of course, in the case of the Loch Ness Monster, there's a significant tourist industry based around it. And I just don't think that grown-up journalists should be allowed to get away with articles saying that the existence of a plesiosaur in a loch in Scotland is, is quotes, plausible. You know, it's just, it's just bonkers. Uh, ecologically, it's bonkers. And of course, in terms of evidence, it's bonkers. You know, we, we haven't got any photographs of a plesiosaur in Loch Ness. There was one taken in 1934 by a surgeon, which got everybody terribly excited. It was a hoax. And anyway, it was it, 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 you can't tell from the photograph whether the thing is six inches high or, or six feet high. So it just it seems fun, really, to point out that we are willing to indulge nonsensical ideas. And Ian, uh, Matt said at the start just now that we've, we're not necessarily more or less gullible as a people than, than we have always been. I wonder, as, as someone who's written about historic hoaxes, do you agree with, with Matt's argument there? And, and how have hoaxes uh, changed, do you think, over history? Why do some continue and others fade into obscurity? Yes, thank you. Uh, well, I can make a couple of comments on Matt's uh, thesis to begin with. I I do distinguish between what we call sort of fun hoaxes and something slightly more sinister, which is obviously when you go into sort of conspiracy theories or fake news. And I do look upon the particular examples you gave of the Loch Ness Monster and, and Yetis and UFOs as probably being more fun than anything else. And if we go back to the 18th century, one publisher wrote back then that um, the reason they talk about such matters is only to divert the people. And I suspect the same is true today. It's just a little bit of fun. And I don't see necessarily anything too sinister about it. And the thing about all these Loch Ness Monster, Yeti, UFOs, etc., they're impossible to sort of disprove because you can't disprove it. A negative. I mean, the only way you could disprove that a Loch Ness monster existed was to drain the entire Loch Ness and then show, look, there's no monster there. We're sort of caught in this sort of area where people are coming up with these things and it's impossible to disprove. And of course, the more you quote facts at them, and, and Matt's article is really excellent about bringing all the facts about why these things don't exist, People who really believe in these things completely ignore that. They go on emotion, and the more you come up with a, a fact, they'll come up with a counterfact, and you just sort of go down a rabbit hole. So I, I do think there is that sort of distinction, if you like, between, um, as I say, more fun hoaxes, which I look upon these things as opposed to more sinister ones. But go, going back to the 18th century, yes, uh, of course, um, hoaxes were very prevalent back in the 18th century, as they have been today. So I don't think there's a lot of difference, really. The hoaxes, actually, almost the ones when I look, looked at specifically, were actually rather sort of less fun and had a more sort of sinister element to them in many ways. But there were some fun hoaxes. Um, I mean, two in particular, you know, the idea that a woman might give birth to rabbits and that a man was going to climb on stage in the new theatre in the Haymarket inside a bottle and sing and dance inside the bottle and the bottle could be handed out to examination. So this was sort of advertised and then people came along and um, obviously, although unfortunately the audience turned up, the performer did not. 
But um, these, uh, both of those hoaxes uh, were sort of easy to uncover and to get rid of, if you like, and obviously it could be proved not to exist because uh, medical science demonstrated that a woman couldn't give birth to rabbits and uh, clearly there was no man inside a bottle. The problem with, with Matt's examples, one of the problems, the fact with Matt's examples is that um, they can they can perpetrate throughout because they are, as I say, almost impossible to disprove. Crop circles is, is a nice example of what Ian's saying because it, they are hoaxes. You know, people make them in the night. Um, that's the whole point of crop circles. And the people who made them owned up to making them. And people went out and commissioned them and then got experts to say they couldn't have been man-made. So there was this this extraordinary resistance to admitting that they were hoaxes. And this was a formative experience for me because, uh, you know, I, I could see immediately, of course, these things were man-made. You know, it's ridiculous, the, the idea that perfect geometric shapes appear in wheat fields is going to be because people are doing it in the middle of the night. I made some myself, and you know, it's very easy. But then I, I found that, you know, Science Magazine wrote an article which was critical of me for making the absurd claim that these things were all hoaxes. And that's affected my view of perfectly ordinary political arguments that have nothing to do with monsters and things ever since, you know, that people can be surprisingly gullible and resistant to reason. And Matt, there's a line in your piece that is quite striking where you say these fantasies grow steadily less plausible with the sale of every iPhone. And while I can see that it's definitely true that the internet does obviously allow common sense to prevail in lots of cases, do you think it is also helping drive this kind of new era of gullibility? Yeah, the, the you know, the, the, the internet proved very useful in exploding a lot of urban legends, you know, the crocodiles in the sewers of New York, etc. We, 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 we gradually learned that these things could be, uh, you, you know, when somebody brought one of these things up at a dinner party, you could quickly Google it and find out that it was an urban myth. Uh, and so it was quite useful, the internet, for shooting down some of these claims. But you're right that it also has enabled a lot of conspiracy mongering to grow in the dark. Well, not in the dark, in the internet, as it were. And 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 for, for the people who want to believe weird things to find each other. I, I do wonder sometimes whether people do actually really believe in these things or a lot of these things. I mean, a good example, I think, is horoscopes, which are in the sort of daily papers. An awful lot of people read horoscopes, but they do it sort of more for fun, I think. And I'm not sure if they would ever really make life-changing decisions on the basis of their horoscope. So I, I do wonder whether with some of these things like the Loch Ness Monster, I mean, there are obviously some people who are fanatical about it, but maybe... You know, if people were really put on the spot and said, do you really genuinely believe in the Loch Ness Monster? Maybe they, they're not quite so convinced as you know, it, it might appear. I, I just wonder that sometimes, whether people are just sort of enjoying the fun of it rather than really believing in it and, and it changing or altering their life. Yeah, I mean, in my own field, you've got the, the wonderful Yuri Geller, you know, and uh, it was interesting, uh, I mean, when he first burst on the scenes, which is in 1973 on the David Dimbleby show, I, th I, I think probably 95% of the population probably believe that he generally could bend spoons. Well, on the magic point, Ian, do you think there's a case that, that people, to some degree, like being tricked? Yes, I, I, yes, I, I do think people like being tricked. I, I think um, the idea of sort of a mystery or a wonder, which maybe we can't solve, is is quite appealing to us. There's something quite nice about being in the frame of mind where you know what you're seeing cannot 
possibly have happened because it's all against the laws of nature that somehow you can't possibly explain it. And I think that's uh, I think that's quite appealing to most people, and that's how magicians flourish and survive. I think because they enjoy yeah just being fooled just as a sort of form of sort of entertainment if you like um i'm going to ask this question to both of you but matt perhaps i'll start with you matt taking you back to your 10 year old self are there any unexplained phenomena or um theories that you sort of you you're kind of open to being (laughs) being convinced by (laughs) yes um i mean the ufos is a tricky one because i do believe that there are interstellar alien creatures believes the wrong word but i suspect there are such things uh, and they might be flitting around the universe by now in some cases but that doesn't mean that i think any evidence that's been produced so far for ufos is of aliens entering uh, uh, civilization and there's a guy called avi loeb at uh, harvard who's the professor of astrophysics there who has written a very good book about a strange object that flew through the solar system in 2017 called Umumia, I think it's called. And it uh, it's an interstellar object, not a, an interplanetary object. And it it's a funny shape, and it seemed to be flashing on and off, and it seemed to accelerate without any obvious cause at one point. And he's saying it's come from another galaxy, or sorry, another star at least, maybe another galaxy. We know that. Why do we not take seriously the possibility that it's actually a probe sent by a civilization with a solar sail attached. And I, I I don't know whether he's right or wrong, but I think he's not wrong to say we shouldn't automatically rule that out. So, yeah, there's a mega mystery and a really exciting one to get excited about, but let's not get so open-minded that our brains fall out. And Ian, how about you? Is there anything that you find convincing, any conspiracy theory that you... Dulgen. I'm sorry, no, I, I have a, <laughs> a very sceptical mind. And I, but I think the scepticism is also fueled by being a magician because I know how easy it is to fool people with something quite simple. And also I know that often when people tell you what they remember seeing, it's completely different from what they did see. So people sort of exaggerate um, what it is that they recall and sort of relay something back to you which was absolutely impossible. So I, I, you know, I both have that sort of innate scepticism, but also the feeling that that's happening in all these sort of conspiracy theories that people are, are taking a, a sort of grain and then expanding it and exaggerating it. I think partly because maybe they have forgotten the original event and therefore they're just sort of misrecalling. But also I think they enjoy the telling of it as well, because if you tell something in such a way that nobody has an explanation for it, then nobody can really respond to it. I mean, that's the problem with people who've sort of seen ghosts. They will say, well, I saw this ghost of my grandmother. And there's no way that you can argue against that because they're remembering, saying they remember an event that you can't argue about. And the more they exaggerate it, the more you say, well, was this in the dark? And then, you know, the next time they tell it, it's in broad daylight and there's no way that uh, they could have mistaken it. You're... You know, there's, there's just no point in arguing about it, really. You just have to accept and say, well, um, you know, that's nice for you, kind of thing. Thank you, Matt and Ian. And that's it for this week. As ever, if you've enjoyed the podcast, pick up a copy of The Spectator magazine to read all the stories in full. I'm William Moore. And I'm Laura Prendergast. And as ever, we hope you'll join us again next week. Mm-hmm.